First Kings chapter 8. Why don't you go ahead and turn there with me. That's our passage for this morning. You meant, or last week, you may remember that I'm going to be dividing chapter 8 down into three sections, primarily because of the size of the chapter, but I also want to make sure that we're adequately able to cover most of what we see there. Last week, we began with the dedication of the temple. That's when Solomon brought the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies. God came down, filled, that, filled the temple. It was a pretty spectacular event. Today we're going to look at verses 22 through 53. That's the second section, and it involves primarily um, Solomon dedicating the temple and then praying his prayer to the Lord on behalf of himself and Israel. We're going to break that down into two small sections. In verses 22 through 26, Solomon calls on the Lord to uphold his covenant with David. And then in verses 27 through 53, Solomon calls on the Lord to uphold his covenant with Israel. So the focus today is on the covenant and God's faithfulness to it. First to David, and then second to Israel. Now there's some important elements to Solomon's prayer that I think we have to note as we go through the passage. First of all, most of what Solomon prays comes directly from the Word of God. You can tell as we go through this that as he prays, there are passages of Scripture that have come to his mind. That's one of the things that we see with Solomon as we go through the, the first 11 chapters is there's, some, there's enough indicators there that, that suggest to us that he had a pretty good handle on the law. He understood what God had written. And we're going to see that reflected in what he says today. His prayer sort of reflects passages from Deuteronomy chapter 7 and Leviticus chapter 26. I'll try to highlight some of that as we go through. But... That's the first thing I want us to see, is that much of what he prays is directly from the Word of God. What it reminds me of, as I, I might have shared this before, but my mentor, Pastor Krenz, when I first met him, um, it was the first time I had been exposed to expository preaching, verse by verse. And he would preach for about 45 minutes. I was used to much more topical, sort of tell you how to do it type messages, highly practical. They would last 30 minutes. Um, didn't always necessarily need your Bible. And so for when I was exposed to him, it was cumbersome and difficult, and I didn't like it. It was challenging. I thought it was boring. And so I left the church for a while. And after being there at his church for about three months and not really liking it very much and going away, it was much more difficult when I was away. I was like, man, something I'm missing something here. And so I kind of got tired of that style of teaching, and I thought I need to go back to Pastor Krenz's church and kind of head, you know, Sunk my head, oh, I don't want to go back. They do hymns and organ music, and it's long. But I went back, and I knocked on his door after the service, and I asked him if he'd mentor me, and he said, sure, show up on Monday. And so we showed up on Monday, he handed me a Bible, and we went through First and Second Timothy, verse by verse, for two years. And I would come in, I'm a young guy, I would come in, and I would have a question for him, and I, hey, you got the pastor's ear, you're going to ask him questions, right? And so I, I, I have something from the week. And what, what sort of shocked me early on, and then ultimately impressed me was every time I would ask him a question, he would open up that darn Bible and he'd start pulling out a scripture verse and answering with scripture. And I remember a time where I said, I, I, don't, I don't want you to take the Bible out. I, just, just, I want your opinion on this. And so he went, all right, ask. So I asked the question and I remember this vividly. He looked at me and said, hmm, that reminds me of a passage. And he reached up 
on the shelf behind him and grabbed his Bible. And I knew at that point that he was not going to give me an answer without it coming from the Word of God. And I think I sent you and Matt a text or something the other day about a letter I just received from Pastor Krenz, an email. Every other sentence, I think, has a Bible verse. That's the way... Because his answers are informed by the Word of God. And I believe we sort of see that reflected in Solomon. So we'll see some of that today. As he prays, we're going to see how the way that he prayed was heavily influenced by what he understood. That's a good lesson for us. That when we answer people, when we pray, when we live our lives, it ought to be heavily influenced by our understanding of the Scripture. So that's the first thing I want us to notice. So keep that sort of in the back of your mind as we do this. Second, the tone and the content of Solomon's prayer is very different than what we might expect from a modern day dedication. When you think of a dedication, we may be, say a baby dedication, what do we do? do? It's generally filled with these positive affirmations to the parents and to the congregation and there's this hopeful expectations of the child, right? Same thing like with a building dedication. You have a building that's being dedicated. Maybe it's a brand new hospital or maybe it's a school and has somebody's name on it, you know, and there's all this pomp and circumstance around it. There might even be a big ribbon to cut And it's filled with all kinds of accolades for those who had, you know, maybe provided the money. But then there's all this excitement around it and the mood is celebratory and it's all a good thing. The thing is, when we come to this dedication of the temple, um, it's much less celebratory. Not that there's no celebration. They praise God in the beginning. But it's a lot less celebratory and it's much more subdued. It takes on almost a sobering tone. Especially as we get to the prayer that Solomon prays on behalf of Israel. It's, like I said, very sobering. It almost serves as a warning to Israel. So keep those two things in mind as we look at this today. Let's, first of all, look at the first four or five verses. This is where Solomon calls on the Lord to uphold his covenant with David. I'm going to read verses 22 through 26. You can join me there. 1 Kings chapter 8. 22 through 26. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, spread out his hands toward heavens. He said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth, keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all their hearts, who have kept with your servant my father David that which you have promised him. Indeed, you have spoken with your mouth and have fulfilled it with your hands as it is to this day. Now therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, keep with your servant David, my father, that which you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel, if only your sons take heed to their way to walk before me as you have walked. There now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word, I pray, be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant, my father, David. So Solomon begins by praising the Lord for his covenant Loyalty, his faithfulness to what he had promised. He declares there's no God like you in heaven, above, or beneath the earth. There are all kinds of things that set God apart from the false, fake gods of the world, but Solomon has one particular thing in mind as he thinks about God, and it's God's loyalty to his covenant. What's interesting about this is as we look at the ancient Near East and we look at all the pagan gods and some of their religious artifacts and writings and other things we've seen, that is unique with God. That is something he is known for, his covenant loyalty. Remember, when we get to the Queen of Sheba, she's going to mention that. Hiram, 
who helped build the temple, mentioned that. They understood God's faithfulness and love for Israel, and so that was unique in the ancient Near East. Many of the gods were all about themselves and somewhat distant in pagan religions, but as Solomon looks at this temple and he begins to dedicate it, the first thing that comes to mind is the Lord's faithfulness to his covenant. Notice he says he keeps his covenant and loving kindness in verse 1. Now, a covenant, we hear that all the time. It's a binding agreement. It's not so much a contract, but it's a binding agreement between two parties where they make promises to each other and there's blessings. That's the language used of God's relationships throughout the Old Testament, whether it's with Moses, whether it's with Abraham, Jacob, others, whether it's with Israel. Even to us, the church, the language of covenant is used. So it's that binding relationship between two parties. One thing that separates the idea of a contract from that of a covenant is that contracts focus on services. You contract for somebody's services. Covenants are all about the relationship. You're contracting the relationship with that individual. So Solomon says here that the Lord is faithful to that relationship. He's faithful to that covenant. But it also says here that he's faithful to his loving kindness. That's another word you oftentimes hear. It's the Hebrew word hesed. It's the, a word that has a billion different meanings. It can refer to obligation, loyalty, faithfulness, kindness, grace, mercy, love. All of those are bound up in this one word, so it's an extremely difficult word to sort of communicate in English. So many of your Bibles will use the phrase loving kindness, which tries to capture exactly what that word means. I've oftentimes referred to it or defined it as God's loyalty to his covenant. Because it's a covenant word. God has loving kindness towards those that he's in a covenant relationship with. But it does indeed speak of all the things we mentioned. An obligation, a loyalty, a faithfulness, somebody's kindness or grace or mercy. And we see all of that in that one word wrapped up. And so what Solomon does here is he praises the Lord for his loving kindness because of his covenant. That he shows towards his servants who walk before him with their entire heart. As I mentioned earlier these words that he's praying here are influenced or shaped by an understanding of God's word. So go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7 with me. Jump down into verse 9 and see if this sounds remotely familiar. Deuteronomy chapter 7, starting at verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God. That's the way Solomon started out. The faithful God who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousand generations to those who love Him and keep His commandments. But He repays those who hate Him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with Him who hates Him. He will repay Him to His face. Therefore you shall keep the commandment and the statutes of the judgments which I am commanding to you today to do them. The only thing missing when Solomon prayed was this part about the condemnation. But he mentions God being the God. He mentions um, the faithfulness of God keeping His covenant and His loving kindness. He mentions needing to walk before Him in His commandments. Leviticus chapter 26, I think it is, um, also covers something very similar. You don't need to turn there, but it's clear that what Solomon is praying here was informed by his understanding of what's in the scriptures. His faithfulness to his covenants, his loving kindness to his people are constant themes throughout the Old Testament. I'm going to just rapid fire a couple of verses here for you. Isaiah 54.10 For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. That's the Lord speaking to Israel. My covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. 
Daniel chapter 9, verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to those who love him and keep his commandments. Now David is saying this while they're in exile. But even David recognizes that even with Israel in exile, God is faithful to his covenant and continues to show loving kindness. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 5. I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. These are the things that Solomon has in his mind as he begins to praise the Lord here for his loving kindness and his covenant loyalty. This phrase, loving kindness, occurs 120 times in just the Psalms alone. It is an important word. And so Solomon, as he is looking at this temple, as he prepares to dedicate this temple... He thinks about that. You know, this is something Solomon, I think, had first-hand experience with. It's not just his father David, but even his own life. Look back at verse 24. You have kept with your servant, my father David, that which you have promised him. Indeed, you have spoken with your mouth and have fulfilled it with your hand as it is to this day. Solomon recognized God's faithfulness to his covenant with David, his father. I have to imagine, I mean, I don't know how close David was with all his kids. You know, he had, I think, what, 11 wives and concubines and a whole handful of kids. And some of them didn't turn out so well, you know. Two of them tried to kill him and take the throne. But you would have to imagine that Solomon was introduced to the Lord's covenant loyalty through David. David probably told him the stories. Maybe David even revealed his own struggles. I don't know, but Solomon clearly understood the promises that God had made to David and saw that they were fulfilled in David. In fact, when um, go back to uh, chapter 3, verse 6, if you will. The first time that the Lord appeared to Solomon, this is what he talks to him about. Chapter 3, verse 6. After Solomon came to the throne, he goes to Gibeon, he makes a sacrifice there. The Lord is pleased with it and he appears for the first time to Solomon. Verse 6, Solomon says, You have shown great loving kindness to your servant David my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart towards you, and you have reserved for him this great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on the throne as of this day. And so David reflects again on God's covenant and loving kindness towards David, but now even reveals here that he sees that extended to him as he's now been placed on the throne. In fact, just before David, or just before Solomon began this dedication, he also reflected on the very same thing. Look at chapter 8, verse 14. This is what we covered last week. 8, verse 14. The king faced about and blessed all the assembly of Israel. While all the assembly of Israel was standing, he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David and has fulfilled it with his hand, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel from Egypt, I did not choose a city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there forever. I chose David to be over my people Israel." If you go on and you read that, he's reflecting there on God's fulfillment of the promises that he made to David. 
So Solomon had seen God's faithfulness to his covenant, faithfulness in his loving kindness, not just in his father David, but even in his being made king over Israel. Now, after he sort of focuses on that, the next thing Solomon does here is he calls on the Lord to hold fast to that covenant with David. In other words, it's not just enough to tell the Lord you're faithful, not just enough to tell him about his loving kindness, but he now beseeches the Lord to continue remaining faithful to that covenant. Look at verses 25 and 26 again. Now, therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, keep with your servant David, my father, that which you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel, if only your sons take heed of their way, or to their way, to walk before me as you have walked. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word, I pray, be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant, my father David. So not only does Solomon reflect on and praise God for his loving kindness and his faithfulness to his covenant, he now beseeches him to continue doing that and to continue remaining faithful to it. You would think he wouldn't have to ask, right? But he does. Don't we kind of do the same thing sometimes? We know what the Lord's going to do, but we ask him to do it anyway. And that's in some respects what Solomon does here. So the first thing we see in this passage as he begins this dedication of the temple, as he begins to speak to the Lord, he is reminded of God's faithfulness, God's loving kindness. It's an important time. This was a fulfillment, as we said last week, where in many respects it's the end of the exodus because they had been promised while they were traveling in the wilderness that God would choose a place. He would give them rest there. They would conquer the land, give them rest. He would ultimately choose a place to put his name. He would build a temple there for his name. And it's where all Israel would then come to worship him there. Well, that didn't ultimately come to fruition until right here, right now. Entering the land didn't give them peace. It wasn't until David was king that they finally got peace in the land. It wasn't until Solomon was born that God finally chose Jerusalem and put his temple there. And so, all those promises are coming together. And Solomon sees that. And sees it as the Lord's faithfulness to his covenant and his loving kindness to not just Israel, but even to David, his father. And in some respects to him, now that he's on the throne. Now, from there, Solomon's going to call on the Lord to uphold the covenant with Israel. And I think this is, um, I think, the most exciting part of this text, partly because of what we see Solomon pray. Solomon turns his thoughts towards the Lord's covenant with Israel as a nation. He begins the first four verses by calling on the Lord to be attentive to Israel's prayer. In other words, to listen. He then follows up the next 22 verses by giving all these specific examples of what he wants the Lord to listen for and to listen to. Let's begin with 27 through 30. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house which I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to, your, or to his supplication. In other words, listen to me, Lord. O Lord my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today. That your eyes may be open toward this house night and day, toward the place of which you have said, My name shall be there. Listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray toward this place. Listen to the supplication of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place. I'm going to stop right there. Briefly, we'll finish up in a moment here. Solomon knew that the temple was purely symbolic of the Lord's presence among Israel. He knew that his house that he built couldn't contain the Lord because heavens and even the highest heavens, he says, can't contain the Lord. 
So God's dwelling place is clearly in heaven. In fact, he references that in verse 30 when he tells them, your dwelling place is heaven. So Solomon knew that. Nonetheless, the Lord said, my name will be there. So even though the highest heavens can't contain him, the Lord says, my name will be right there on that temple. It's symbolic of his presence among Israel. In fact, we see when he prays here that he even mentions the Gentiles. The Gentiles even would know that Yahweh is worshipped in Jerusalem at the temple. That's where to find him. Now we know they could find him in their own country. Jesus himself said we could worship in spirit and truth, ultimately. You didn't have to go to the temple to worship the Lord. If you needed to make sacrifices to him, you were supposed to go to the temple. But you could find him in other places, but there's something unique about the temple. God would put his name there to be the symbolic place of his presence here on earth. So it symbolized that. The temple was also a reminder that when they would pray, the Lord would hear and respond to their praise or to their prayers. Solomon called on the Lord, he says, to have regard to his prayer. That means to turn toward the prayer of your servant. Think about that for a minute. He says, have regard, and again, that's this idea of turning toward and listening. You know, when you think about that picture there, when you speak to somebody, if they're having trouble hearing you, what do they do? They turn towards you, don't they? And this is a great word picture here that Solomon is basically asking God to turn his ear, to, to listen. It's a great word picture. That as somebody were to pray, all of a sudden the, the Lord's head would turn and start listening. Something that has always boggled me. I spend most, I mean, I, I do most of my prayer time, if you will, in the morning when I get up. I stay in bed and I kind of roll over and I pray. And I've been saved now for, I think, since 1983, 84. And it still kind of shocks and amazes me that when I get up in the morning and I start to pray, that I've got God's full and undivided attention. When there are millions, maybe billions of other people praying at that same time. But yet, God's turned his ear towards me. That's the picture here. He means to give attention to it. The phrase is often used to give them your heart, to respond. All wrapped up in this one word. And so when Solomon says, turn toward the prayer of your servant, he's not just talking about listening, but also taking it to heart and also responding. That's all wrapped up in that same concept, that idea. Notice the repetition. Verse 28, he says, have regard to the prayer. In verse 28, a little bit later, he says, listen to the cry and to the prayer. In verse 30, he says, listen to the supplication of your servant and your people Israel. Verse 30 again, hear in heaven, hear and forgive, is what he says. Notice how Solomon relates the Lord's regard to their prayers to the temple. Did you catch that? He basically refers to this place and as people pray towards this place, we're going to see that again here. People would. They would face the temple and they would pray. And so he says, as they do that, hear them. So he calls on the Lord. He beseeches the Lord to continue hearing Israel as they pray, continue to be faithful to them. The next thing he's going to do now is he's going to give some examples. He's going to be pretty thorough here. Due to the number of verses, I'm simply going to read through it and then we're going to comment on it. But I want you to pay attention to a couple of things as I read this. Okay, a few things here. 
I want you to notice a number of times that Israel or that Solomon refers to Israel sinning against God and then suffering the consequences of that sin. That's the first thing. Notice how many times Solomon refers to Israel sinning. Notice the emphasis on Israel turning back to God as well, confessing their sins and praying toward the temple when they repent. Second thing I want you to see. Third thing I want you to notice is repeated references to the Lord hearing the prayers from heaven and then responding, including forgiving them of their sin. That's the third thing. Notice repeated references to God hearing their prayer and then responding to it through forgiveness. And then finally, notice the repeated references to God's sovereign choice of Israel, giving them the land, choosing them, making them his people. Okay? So you got those four things? Anybody need me to go back through those again? All good? All right. Just kind of listen for those things as I read through this. This is a pretty good chunk of of Scripture here, but verse 31 all the way down to 53. We'll start with the end of verse 30. Hear and forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, and he comes and takes an oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, if they turn to you again and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because they have sinned against you, and they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin when, they, or when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and your people Israel. Indeed, teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land which you have given your people for an inheritance. If there's famine in the land, if there's pestilence, if there's blight or mildew, locusts or grasshopper, if their enemies besiege them in the land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness is there, Whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart, means knowing their own sin, and spreading his hands toward this house, there or then here in heaven your dwelling place, and forgive the act and render to each according to his ways, whose heart you know, and you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days And they live in the land which you have given to our fathers. Also, concerning the foreigner who is not of your people Israel, when he comes from a far country for your namesake, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the prophets or peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you And do your people Israel, that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. When your people go out to battle against the enemy, by whatever way you shall send them, and then pray to the Lord towards this city which you have chosen in the house which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin, and they are angry, and you are angry with them, and deliver them to an enemy, so that they take or that they take them away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. 
If they take thought in the land where they've been given or taken captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who have taken them captive, saying, We have sinned and have committed iniquity, we have acted wickedly. If they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of the enemies who have taken them captive and pray to you toward their land which you have given to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the house which I have built for your name, then hear their prayer and their supplication in heaven, your dwelling place, and maintain their cause. And forgive your people who have sinned against you and their transgressions which they have transgressed against you. And make them objects of compassion before those who have taken them captive that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your inheritance which you have brought from, the, from Egypt, from the midst of the iron furnace, that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and to the supplication of your people, to listen to them whenever they call to you. For you have separated them from all peoples on the earth as your inheritance, as you spoke through Moses your servant when you brought our fathers from out of Egypt. O Lord God. That's a mouthful, isn't it? So here all Israel is, standing before the temple. Maybe they had a ribbon that they cut. Big celebration. There were probably trumpeters and and a choir and all those things as we saw last week. Massive celebration. And then Solomon begins to pray and the people are rejoicing over his covenant loyalty and his faithfulness. And then all of a sudden, he starts talking about their sin and when they sin and when they sin and when they sin what a downer but you know Solomon understood Israel's past he knew what would be required of them it's both reflective of Israel's past and it's predictive of Israel's future we see a similar cycle of sin as we go through the book of Judges Remember that cycle we saw when we studied it? Israel, things would be going great for Israel. There's all these blessings, much like this time with Solomon. And then Israel turns their back and begins to worship Baal. So God brings consequences, brings enemies against them. They see these enemies. They begin to cry out. They finally repent, call out their own sin. They call on the Lord to save them. And what does he do? He sends them a judge, saves them. They praise him for it. He brings back prosperity. And then what do they do? Start the circle all over again. We saw that over and over and over again. That's their pattern. Solomon knew that pattern, clearly. But he also apparently knew what to expect in the future because he mentions captivity here. We know that ultimately Israel ends up in captivity. And he prophesies that, foreshadows that right here as he prays. One of the things that I love about this passage is this mention of the foreigner. Right in the middle of all this, He mentions, and when that foreigner comes and he prays, he's outside the family of Israel, but yet this foreigner, when he comes, hear him too. He also repeats it in some respects, but a little bit later, you know, as we we read, read through that, wanting all the world to know that God is the God of Israel. And so we kind of have these two references to Gentiles here. God's plan has always included the Gentiles. And so, as Solomon prays these things, he includes the foreigners in it as well as Israel itself. But we see how Solomon, these, these words, you can actually go back and, I think I made, did I make the note here where you can find that? Hold on a second. Yeah, go to Deuteronomy chapter 30. 
It's another chunk, but Deuteronomy chapter 30, this again gives us a picture of Solomon's understanding of the scriptures. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read it again. It's a good chunk, but listen to how Solomon's words were reflected, reflective of this. Chapter 30, Deuteronomy, verse 1. So it shall be when all of these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. And you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all of your heart and soul according to that which I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord the God or the Lord your God has scattered you. If your, outca- if your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and, with all, or, and so that you may live. The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you and persecuted you. And you shall reign, or you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments which I command you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hands and the offspring of your body and in the offspring of your cattle and in the produce of the ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God and keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in this book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul. Do you see how Solomon's prayer reflected that? This concept of Israel being chastised because of their sin and going off into captivity, and yet the Lord remains faithful and will bring them back if they repent and they walk according to his commands and statutes. And so as Solomon prays, he's calling on God to uphold that covenant that he has with Israel. And again, I, I believe that the reason he did that was his, the influence the scriptures had on him. Because so many of the words are reflective of what we had just read. And so that's his prayer for Israel. He begins with this reminder of God's covenant loyalty and his loving kindness to David. Then he calls out to the Lord to continue that same loving kindness and faithfulness to Israel fully laying out what to expect of Israel. He knows that Israel will continue their pattern. And so he calls on the Lord, don't turn your ear away. Listen when that, when that happens. And when they repent, hear and respond and forgive them for their sins. So what do we do with this? What's the message for us in this passage? First one that I can think of here is just as the Lord is faithful to his covenant with Israel, he's faithful to us. We've talked about that repeatedly. What's interesting about this to me is that we as well as Israel are in a covenant relationship. That's the, that's the foundation for our relationship with Christ. It's a covenant. It's a relationship. Jesus referred to it as the new covenant, which was established in his blood when he died on the cross. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 22. We hear this whenever we do communion. But Luke chapter 22, jump down to verse 19. And when he had taken some of the bread and given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, This is my body which has been given to you or for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup 
after, eat, or after they had um, eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He's talking about our salvation, our relationship with him right there as being a new covenant. The author of Hebrews dedicated over half of his epistle, all of chapter 7 through all of chapter 13, to discussing this new covenant. I'm not going to read to you those seven chapters. You can go and do that on your own time. But literally dedicates half the book of Hebrews to discussing the new covenant relationship that we have with God. When we accept the gift of salvation, when we profess our faith in Jesus Christ, and God grants to us eternal life through his grace, that makes us participants in a new covenant with God. And that covenant then governs our relationship with the Lord. And in some respects, if I can go as far as to say, it obligates the Lord, not that we deserve it, but because of his character, he has chosen to commit himself to be faithful to us by establishing a covenant with us. And what that basically means is that it assures that we have the same covenant loyalty and God's loving kindness as Noah, Abraham, David, Israel. God will be faithful just as he was to them, to us. I mentioned the book of Hebrews. Right in the middle of that, in chapter 10, verse 23, the author of Hebrews wrote this, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. We hold to our hope, not because of what we can do, but because of God's faithfulness. There's a reason why the Old Testament is two-thirds of our Bible, because what's, what's communicated through there over and over and over and over again is God's character, his faithfulness, his loving kindness. We should be convinced of that right now because of what we see. Paul mentioned to the Corinthians the confidence they could have in Christ because of this new covenant. Just listen to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4-6. through six. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Verse 6, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not the letter, but the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So where does our confidence in Christ come from? We are servants of a new covenant in Christ. And with that new covenant comes the promise of God to be faithful to that covenant and to continue to extend his loving kindness towards us. Paul wrote in Romans that nothing can destroy that. You all know this passage. Romans 8.38 Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, or any other created thing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Why? Because we are in a covenant relationship with Him. So the first takeaway for us, I think, from Solomon's passage here is that just as the Lord was faithful to His promises, to His covenant with David and to Israel, we have that same assurance. Absolutely have that same assurance. Second thing, just as the Lord provided a means of hope and restoration for Israel, when they sinned, he offers us the same thing. It would be a horrific thing if God basically said, okay, I'll save you one time, 
But you ever sin again, it's over. See, one of the unique things about a covenant relationship is it's not that easy to destroy that covenant. What's interesting to me is you often hear that there are different types of covenants, conditional and unconditional, you know. But the one thing that so many people misunderstand about covenants is they think that if you break the conditions, the covenant is broken. That is not true. The covenant is not severed. In fact, God fulfilled every single covenant in the Old Testament. Didn't fail it once. What you forfeit when you violate the laws of the covenant are the blessings of the covenant. That's what Israel lost. There were generations of Israel that did not experience the blessings of the covenant. But God remained in his covenant relationship with Israel because covenants, when it comes to God, are not, cannot be severed. That's where our eternal security comes from. And because of that, God provides a means to forgive us when we sin. That's why Solomon prayed the way that he did. He knew that God is a God who is forgiving and loving. And if you sin, when you sin, he even said, no man doesn't sin. If and when you sin, the Lord provides a means of restoration He provides a means of forgiveness when you come and you repent and you walk in his ways. And so he prays that for Israel and the same thing is true for us today. Thank God for that. My life would be miserable if I had to constantly wonder and worry if this is the last time that God's going to forgive me. That is a horrific thought. Most of Solomon's prayer focused on Israel's sin. Do you notice that? And on God's redemptive power to restore them, all they had to do was repent and come back to him. I just got done finishing up chapter 11, the last chapter we're going to study last night. Something hit me like a ton of bricks. The last thing we learn about Solomon, the very last act described of Solomon, is after the Lord rebukes him for his idolatry, He then brings these adversaries against Solomon. Raises up, it was a chastisement. How did Solomon respond? He tried to kill the one that God had replaced him with. The last act we see of Solomon is he tries to circumvent God's plan instead of repenting. That's that's just, I mean, like I said, I've, I've always read over that. I thought, what a horrific legacy. The last thing written about you is you tried to Circumvent God's plan instead of repenting. David, when David, David had horrific sins. But how did David respond? Remorse. Repentance. And he was still called the man after God's own heart. Why? Not because he was perfect. David took advantage of, and I mean that in a good sense, took advantage of the Lord's offer to forgive by repenting, by recognizing that that's the way God works. When it comes to us, you've heard this passage over and over and over again. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And then, notice that it says, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He doesn't just forgive, he wipes the slate clean. We may have earthly consequences, but when it comes to God's ledger, that's no longer held against us. David had earthly consequences for his sin. But in God's ledger... Just like we are, he's washed in the blood of Christ. It's forgotten. Thrown as far as the east is from the west. First John chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's the goal. 
The reason that Solomon wrote this for us is that we might not sin, so that Israel might not sin. It's a warning. Don't sin. These are the consequences. But then just like Solomon, John wrote, And if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus didn't just forgive us one time, folks. In fact, he didn't just intercede for us one time. He continues to forgive and continues to intercede for us. I'll read one last passage and then we'll turn to another one. But Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says, Therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for us. What is Jesus Christ doing right now for us? He is interceding on our behalf. Why? Because we continue to sin. And he will continue to intercede until we are made perfect and glorified in him. Turn to Romans chapter 8. We already alluded to this, and this will be our last passage here. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised. And look at this. Who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or madness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for the sake, for your sake, we are put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And then we see the passage that talks about nothing being able to separate us from him. What's that passage telling us? Jesus Christ today intercedes for us because we need him to intercede for us as well. And so just as Solomon prayed that the Lord would listen to Israel when we find ourselves caught in sin and we repent, he listens, he hears, he responds. And when we repent, when, as John says, we confess our sins, he remains faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us of all righteousness. I love how consistent the word of God is. To go from a passage in the Old Testament dealing with Israel to see how it reflects our relationship with Christ today in every way. Praise God for that. Amen.